The Old Testament is divided into three large sections. There are the books of Moses, the Torah, the Pentateuch. Then beginning with Joshua, we have a long series of books of history, which talk about the conquest of the land, and then the establishment of the Davidic kingdom in the land, the division of the kingdom, and leading up to the end of the end of the Davidic kingdom at the end of the book of Kings. After that, we have a long section of the Old Testament that's concerned with prophetic books. We move from Torah to histories to prophets. And each of those sections of the Old Testament has a characteristic place and a characteristic person. In the Torah, the central person is the priest, and the central place is the sanctuary, the tabernacle, where the priests offer their sacrificial, the sacrificial worship of Israel. During the history books, the characteristic place is the land. There's still a temple, there's still a sanctuary, but now the kings are ruling the entire land. They're building temples, they're repairing temples, but they're also ruling over the land. We move from priests in the sanctuary to kings in the land. But then when Israel is scattered at the time of the exile, they move out into the wider world and prophets take over as the leading voices of Israel. It's the prophetic word that keeps Israel together as one people throughout the time of the exile and leading into the post-exilic period. We move from the sanctuary to the land to the world. We move from priests to kings to prophets. And the book of Acts recapitulates that Old Testament history. The apostles are going through the same history, not only the same history that Jesus went through, but also the same history that Israel went through. They are the new Israel, the the chiefs of the new Israel. And as their story is told, Luke is organizing it, so it recapitulates that movement from the Old Testament. The first part of the book of Acts takes place entirely in the temple city of Jerusalem. The debates and the conflicts are about the temple. They're about what the apostles do at the temple. They're about the apostles taking over material and people and power from the temple authorities. The conflicts that they have are with chief priests and temple officials. But then they're scattered from Jerusalem. They go out from Jerusalem and they go to Samaria. They go into Galilee. They go to Caesarea, which is on the northern edge of the land of Judea. They go out from the city, the temple city, into the land. And now the chief priests are not their main enemies. Instead, we have city officials and kings like King Herod in Acts chapter 12 who imprisons Peter, puts puts James to death, and then imprisons Peter. We move move from Jerusalem and concerned with the temple and priesthood into the land where they confront kings. And then beginning in chapter 13, right about the middle of the book of Acts, we begin a series of missionary journeys. Paul goes out into the imperial world, into the world of Gentiles, outside of the land. He goes to Asia Minor. He goes to Greece. He eventually makes his way to Rome at the end of the book. And instead of priests being the primary opponents, or kings and city officials being the primary opponents, Paul stands trial before a series of imperial officials. The apostles are moving through the same sequence of events, the same places, the same opponents that the Old Testament, uh, that the Old Testament had done. Chapter 8 of the book of Acts is the beginning of the royal section of the book of Acts. And that's signaled primarily by a name. The big clue that we're moving out of the uh, concern with the temple and priesthood, moving into a royal section of the book of Acts, is a name. 
the name Saul, who is introduced first at the end of chapter 7. He's there watching Stephen being stoned. He's taking care of the cloaks of the men who are stoning Stephen. And then he begins to lead the persecution of the Christians, not only in Jerusalem, but at the beginning of chapter 9 here, he's leading the persecution of Christians outside of Jerusalem. Saul, a second Saul. The first Saul, of course, was the first king of Israel. Before there was a David, before there was a Davidic dynasty, there was Saul and a potential dynasty of Saul. And the second Saul picks up where the first Saul left off. The first Saul was, uh, was chosen as king in order to fight Israel's enemies. But he spent most of his reign chasing David around the land. He's trying to preserve his dynasty, trying to preserve the old regime. He's trying to preserve the, the, the royal status quo. And he's trying to suppress his rival, David. And the second Saul is doing exactly the same thing. He's trying to preserve the status quo. He's trying to preserve the old regime. He's trying to suppress the disciples of this upstart who claims to be the anointed king, the new David, the greater David, the new Solomon. He is persecuting Jesus, the greater David. But of course, the two stories, the story of the first Saul and the story of the second Saul, begin to diverge here on the road to Damascus. The second Saul's life takes a different path because what happens on the road to Damascus? He is authorized to arrest and to take, uh, take disciples of Jesus back to Jerusalem to stand trial. While on the way, he is shattered and made new. The old Saul dies on the road to Damascus and a new Saul comes into replacing him. At the beginning of the story, he's breathing threats and murders against the disciple. He's breathing the breath of death. At the end of this episode, he has received the spirit, the breath of God. The Greek word has the same root. Breath and spirit are from the same Greek root. He's been breathing death, but now he receives the spirit of life, which is the spirit of Jesus. When Jesus appears to him in a great light, a bright light that's brighter than the sun... He falls to the ground. He falls down to the dust of death. But then he's raised up from the dust of death. And on the third day, he is baptized and receives the Spirit. He's made blind, and then he sees again. Luke includes several negations. He's without sight, without food, without drink. He is a dead man. And then is brought back to life on the third day. On the third day, he's made a partaker of the resurrection of Jesus. Old Saul dies. He's no longer going to be King Saul. He's no longer going to be persecuting David. He's converted instead to become a follower of this new David. But this is not just a conversion story. This is also a story of commissioning. Commissioning. Saul sees a great light. He'll describe it later in Acts as a light that's brighter than the sun a light that outshines the sun at noonday. And out of that bright light, he hears a voice calling his name. We've seen this scene before. Moses, Moses, says a voice from a burning bush. Isaiah is called from the blazing glory of the temple. 
that glory appears to Ezekiel at the river Kibar while Ezekiel is in exile and calls him to be a prophet. A voice calls Jeremiah, as we heard in our Old Testament lesson, and commissions him to be a prophet to the nations. Paul is not merely converting to become a follower of Jesus. He is being commissioned to be something like a new covenant prophet, to do what Jeremiah did in the Old Covenant, to tear down and to build up. He's a prophet to the nations, to uproot and to plant. He comes into the light of Jesus, and he is made a light. Later, this Saul, writing as Paul, will say in Ephesians that everything that comes into the light is light. He came into the light of Jesus. And because he came into the light of Jesus, and Jesus shone on him with the light of the glory of God that is in the face of Jesus, Paul goes away shining with that same light. The the Saul who comes into the light of Jesus goes out as a Saul, shining the light of Jesus to the Gentiles. And when Jesus commissions anyone in the book of Acts, one aspect of that is to conform their lives to the life of Jesus. It's happened repeatedly already. We've seen it with a number of disciples. Stephen, for example, contends with the Jews in the temple just as Jesus did. He overcomes all of his opponents in the temple just as Jesus did. His opponents are enraged at him and take him outside the city and stone him. He's put to death because of his witness just as Jesus was. Stephen's last words are like the words of Jesus on the cross. Stephen is a second coming of Christ. So is Peter. So will Paul be. Initially, Paul is like another Stephen. Stephen was there watching, Saul was there watching as Stephen was stoned to death. But when Jesus confronts him, his whole life is reordered. His life takes a new direction. His life takes a new path. There's a different story to be told of Saul. And that story parallelizes, parallel, parallels, not paralyzes, parallels the story of Stephen. Almost as soon as he gets to Damascus, Saul becomes a witness to Jesus. Almost as soon as he gets to Damascus, he's contending with the Jews about Jesus as Stephen was. Almost as soon as he's converted, he's under threat. He was the hunter. He has become the prey. He was making martyrs. Now he becomes a martyr. And the Jews of Damascus want to kill him as the Jews of Jerusalem wanted to kill Stephen. He escapes and goes to Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, he debates with the Hellenistic Jews, who are the very same Jews that Stephen debated with. And those Jews want to kill Saul the same way they killed Stephen. Saul becomes a new Stephen, who was a new Jesus. Part of his apostolic ministry from then on is sharing the sufferings of Jesus, living out in his own life the life of Jesus. Paul points to this in his epistles a lot. It's not just Paul's message that's about Jesus. His entire life is a witness to the dying and rising of Jesus. The death of Jesus works in him constantly, in his sufferings, in, his, in the opposition he encounters, in being stoned, in being cast out of cities. The suffering of Jesus works in him. The dying of Jesus is at work in him so that the life of Jesus can be at work among the people of God. He becomes a new Christ filled with the spirit of Jesus. He doesn't just become a disciple. He becomes 
uh, he becomes an apostle. The persecutor becomes the persecutor. The one who makes martyrs becomes a target of murderous mobs. King Saul's life ends in tragedy. King Saul loses everything. He loses his children during his own lifetime. His daughter marries David, becomes part of David's household. His son, Jonathan, switches sides. Jonathan, who is the heir apparent to Saul's throne, instead of supporting Saul in his conflict with David, instead takes David's side, going so far as taking off his royal robes. He's the crown prince. And he takes off all the signs of his status as crown prince and he hands them over to David because he knows David is going to succeed his father and not him. Saul loses his family. He loses his mind. He's plagued by an evil spirit. He loses contact with the Lord. He ends up at at a medium in the city of Endor trying to consult with Samuel who is dead because the Lord will no longer talk to him. He ends his life on the mountains of Gilboa, first hit with Philistine arrows and then falling on his own sword. And the greatest failure of King Saul, the greatest failure is his failure to achieve his primary purpose in life, which was to kill David. That's what he spent most of his reign doing, trying to stop David from being his successor. He can't even do that. And David waits patiently until the Lord removes Saul, and then David inherits the kingdom. King Saul fails to exterminate the seed of David. The second Saul, Saul who becomes the Apostle Paul, also fails to exterminate David and his seed, but for different reasons. You might remember the one episode where King Saul, uh, David confronts King Saul outside of a cave. They've both been inside the cave. David has an opportunity to kill Saul, but he doesn't do it. And when Saul goes out of the cave, David calls to him. And Saul realizes that he's been attacking David uh, unfairly, unjustly. That David is actually doing nothing but good for Saul. And he has a moment of remorse. You are more righteous than I. But then the next moment, Saul is back to his old plan. And he's chasing David around the countryside again. The first David can't convert King Saul. He can't remake King Saul. But the second David, the greater David, can. And when Saul hears the voice of the second David, the greater David, when Saul hears that voice on the road to Damascus, he is utterly and completely and permanently changed. You are more righteous than I, he might say to Jesus. He becomes a different man. Jesus' enemies cannot withstand him. Jesus doesn't have to wait for his father to eliminate Saul. He changes Saul. But he doesn't just change Saul into a follower. He changes Saul into a herald of the kingdom of David. Think of that. The first Saul tried to kill David. The second Saul becomes a herald of David's kingdom. Jesus turns Saul's into Jonathan's. He turns his enemies into apostles. And because he does that, the church is renewed. The passage that I read ends with the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoying peace, being built up, going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It continued to increase. The church had scattered. 
the disciples had fled from Jerusalem, but now Saul, the one who is chasing them from Jerusalem, is one of them. And the church can be at peace, and the church can increase. But it's important to see how Luke has put this story together, how he's, giving it, how he's writing the account of Saul's conversion. Saul is introduced in chapter 7 during the stoning of Stephen. His persecution begins at the beginning of chapter 8. But then Luke leaves Saul out of the picture for a whole chapter, a long chapter, and follows the ministry of Philip. Philip was one of those disciples who was in Jerusalem, who fled from Jerusalem because of Saul. He doesn't go looking for a place to hide. He's been kicked out of Jerusalem. He's had to flee Jerusalem. And what he looks for is a new mission field, and he finds it in Samaria. And then he encounters an Ethiopian eunuch. So the gospel goes to the Gentiles, to the far off southern edge of the known world. Before the persecution of Saul, the church was increasing. During the persecution of Saul, the church was increasing. After the persecution of Saul, the church increases. It's always so. The church can increase whether they're at peace, whether we're under persecution and threat, whether the persecution has ended, it doesn't matter. Jesus is still increasing and extending his kingdom, partly by turning enemies into apostles, partly by turning Saul's into Jonathan's. Our passage tells the story of the conversion and commissioning of Saul, but it also tells another story that begins in verse 10 and takes up a good part of the passage. Beginning in verse 10, Luke switches scenes. He leaves Saul being led into Damascus, Saul who's blind, Saul who is not eating, Saul who is not drinking, Saul who has nothing, Saul who has been shattered. He leaves him behind and begins to focus instead for about 10 verses on a man named Ananias, who we've never met before. And not only is, does Luke spend a lot of space in this chapter looking at Ananias and telling the story of Ananias, but the story of Ananias almost point by point follows and parallels, not paralyzes, but parallels what happens to Saul. On the road to Damascus, Saul sees a vision in a house in Damascus. Ananias sees a vision. Saul hears a voice. Ananias hears a voice. Saul responds to the voice. Ananias responds to the voice. The voice gives Saul a command. Saul follows the command. Ananias receives a command from the Lord and follows the command. It's almost as if Ananias too is going through some kind of conversion experience in an encounter with the Lord. Part of the reason, I think, why Luke spent so much time with Ananias is because he reveals to Ananias certain things, certain truths about Saul's purpose and his future that he doesn't reveal directly to Saul. He tells Ananias, not Saul, that he's a chosen vessel. He tells Ananias, not Saul, that he's going to bear his name before Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. That message is, is mediated through Ananias to Saul. Um, Ananias is the first one to learn about Saul's eventual suffering for the sake of Jesus. Even Saul, Saul who encountered Jesus in a great light, who heard the voice of Jesus directly, 
Saul, who was converted on the road to Damascus in this, one of the most dramatic conversions in the history of in the history of the world, even that Saul receives instructions through another disciple. He's baptized by another disciple. His gateway into the church is just like everybody else's, even though he's encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus. But I think there's another reason why Luke spends so much time talking about Ananias. Ananias has to go through a conversion. That's true. Notice his initial reaction when Jesus says, go find Saul. He's in the house of a man named Judas here in Damascus. Ananias says, I know this Saul. I've heard of this man. I know what he did in Jerusalem. I know why he's here. I know he's carrying letters from the high priest that authorize him to arrest and try and perhaps kill Christians. And you want me to go find him. It's an understandable reaction. But you can think of, think of the, the man, the living man or woman who is the greatest threat to the church today. That's the president of China. Kim Jong-un in North Korea. Some leader of a Muslim, militant Muslim group in Africa or the Middle East. Take your pick. And then imagine that that person arrives at church and says, I want to be baptized. I saw Jesus in a vision. Can I become part of your community? We'd be hesitant. be suspicious. As the disciples are. Ananias has to see Saul differently before Saul's mission can be accomplished. If Ananias doesn't receive Saul, then there is no Saul turned Paul the apostle. There is no mission to the Gentiles. We lose a big chunk of the New Testament. If the church doesn't receive this Saul, if Saul doesn't have the opportunity to be nurtured in the church to become the apostle Paul, then his mission will not be completed. Ananias has to convert too. He has to come to believe that Jesus can change Saul's into Jonathan's. And he does. And it's a miracle. Saul becomes a new man. Even his name is a kind of sign of resurrection. Remember the, the last Ananias we saw in the book of Acts? There's another Ananias in the book of Acts. Last time we saw him, he was a corpse because he had lied to the Holy Spirit and had fallen along with his wife Sapphira before the feet of the disciples. And was, the last time we saw him, he was being carried out by some young men to be buried. Now another man named Ananias pops up, and he's at, uh, Saul is in a house of a man named Judas. Seems like dead people are popping up all over the place in this passage. Ananias' uh, very name suggests resurrection. He becomes a new man, and he receives Saul. This is not just a tale of Saul's conversion, it's a tale of two conversions. The conversion of Saul is the most famous one, but the conversion of Ananias is just as crucial to the future of the church and the future ministry of Saul, who becomes Paul. If Ananias doesn't receive him, then Saul's mission is not completed. And those two conversion stories converge in the house of Judas, where Ananias comes in and greets Saul as brother Saul. Brother Saul. Initially, I know this Saul. He's trying to kill me. No, go see him. He's a chosen vessel. 
And Ananias greets him and receives him as a brother. Ananias could have been the elder brother in the parable of the prodigal. He could have refused to enter into his father's joy. He could have remained sullen, unbelieving that this prodigal Saul had actually changed and actually had returned to his father. The fact that Ananias is not an elder brother is a miracle. This double conversion is a double miracle. It's a miracle of repentance for Saul, and it's a miracle of reception for Ananias, a miracle of hospitality. And those two miracles converge in a miracle of reconciliation that's fulfilled and signified by a common meal in the house of Judas. When Saul begins to see, he arises and is baptized, and he takes food and is strengthened. Ananias and Saul sit down at a common table, brothers together, followers together of the new day. Both signs of the power of the new David, not only to stop Saul's in their tracks and to turn them into Jonathan's, but also to create a community of hospitality, of welcome, of reception for people like Saul who turn from their murders and receive the Spirit. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.